stopped overnight. And the and, and the fact that even after these warnings were issued, even after the International Court of Justice issued its 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 provisional measures instructing Israel that it had to undertake these key actions. Um, that this has continued, and the United States has not stopped it, makes them culpable, culpable for the crimes of starvation. Alex Duval, thank you so much for joining us. Executive Director, World Peace Foundation at Tufts University. We'll link to your article. Unless Israel changes course, it could be legally culpable for mass starvation. We'll continue our conversation with Alex and post it on our website. This is thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is Democracy Now, democracynow.org. I'm Narmeen Sheikh. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Tune in to KBOO throughout February, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. for Black History Future Month, our special programming series in celebration of Black heritage. This series aims to celebrate all aspects of the Black lived experience, from contemporary, political, and social issues to understanding how history impacts our present. Again, that's Black History Future Month, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. throughout the month of February, where you will hear interviews from Black creatives, artists, activists, revolutionaries, KBU hosts, musicians, and more, here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. to Higher Reasoning Reggae every Sunday morning at 3 a.m. Higher Reasoning Reggae is dedicated to bringing international reggae word and sound power to the massive airing early Sunday mornings at 3 a.m. Only on KBOO Portland. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, Oregon state lawmakers head to Salem for the short legislative session. The Multnomah County Commission plans to vote on a ceasefire resolution. And the Portland Fire Bureau considers cuts to street response to fill the hole in their budget. Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm Reed Johnson. And I'm Michelle Coppola. The Oregon State Legislature started its short 35-day session today in Salem. Governor Tina Kotek ranked the top priorities for the session as affordable housing development, homelessness, and drug addiction policy. Other issues up for debate include the semiconductor industry and the downtown Portland business development environment. The major housing-related bill to be debated is Senate 
Senate Bill 1537. SB 1537 would funnel millions of dollars into the construction of middle-income and affordable housing, infrastructure like roads and sewers, and incentives for climate-friendly projects. It would also establish a state housing accountability and production office, which would help developers and local governments navigate housing laws and speed up construction. Most controversial in SB 1537 is the proposal to allow a one-time exception for cities to expand their urban growth boundaries up to 150 acres as long as 30 percent of the new housing is, quote, affordable. Last session, the governor wasn't able to pass a similar housing bill, largely because members of her own party were against that exception. On drug policy, lawmakers are expected to recriminalize drug possession in some way, shape, or form, and the governor has said she'd support that move. We'll have more on that story shortly. State lawmakers could also put a sunset provision on the recriminalization, meaning the provision would be phased out at some point in the future. This week, the state's economist is scheduled to deliver a revenue forecast for the state as well, which should give lawmakers an idea of how the economy is doing and how much money is available for spending and balancing the budget. Oregon alternates between long and short legislative sessions yearly, with long sessions in odd-numbered years lasting up to 160 days. As just stated, it's the first day of the short legislative session in Oregon, a time when lawmakers need to come together to pass important policies and quickly. But one conservative state lawmaker, Representative E. Warner Reschke from Malin on the Oregon-California border, suggested that Muslims, atheists, and other non-Christians are not fit to hold elected office. OPB reports that Reschke was on the Facebook talk show Save the Nation on January 17th. It's a talk show that's affiliated affiliated with the National Association of Christian Lawmakers. The host, Jason Rappert, asked Reschke why it was important for Christians to be involved in government. Reschke says he he was inspired by American leaders like Washington, Madison, Lincoln, and Reagan. He continued saying this. You know, you just go back through history and you look at men and the, the struggles that they faced and the faith that they had And those are the type of people that you want in government making tough decisions during tough times. You don't want a materialist. You don't want an atheist. You don't want a Muslim. You don't want, you want somebody who understands what truth is and understands the nature of man, the nature of government and the nature of God. If you don't understand those things, you're going to get things wrong. And in Oregon, that's a classic example. We have a lot of people who are godless, unfortunately, leading the way, and it's the blind leading the blind. Yeah. Representative Reschke's comments were flagged by progressive organizations and and advocacy groups that push to keep religion out of governance. It's not clear how many Oregon state lawmakers are atheists, but at least one, Representative Casey Jama from Portland, is Muslim. Jama said in a statement, quote, I am disheartened to see one of my legislative colleagues express views contrary to American values, the U.S. Constitution, and our collective aspiration of building a more perfect union, end quote. Reschke told OPB that he hadn't meant to suggest that JAMA or any other non-Christian lawmakers were unfit to serve. As we mentioned earlier, the voter-approved measure that decriminalized small amounts of drugs in Oregon could see changes this legislative session. Supporters of the measure say it criminalizes people who are in need of help. Eric Tegedoff has more. 
As the Oregon legislative session opens, lawmakers could make changes to a voter pass measure that decriminalized small amounts of drugs and opened up more access to treatment. Backers of the measure say it's a move in the wrong direction. Oregon voters passed Measure 110 in 2020. Since then, lawmakers have become worried about the increasing number of drug overdoses. However, Sammy Teo with Oregon Food Bank says recriminalizing drug possession won't fix this problem, especially with people lining up for detox services. We need treatment beds, not jail beds. We need housing, mobile crisis counselors, better coordination between providers and law enforcement, and not to regress to tactics that increase the likelihood of overdose deaths which is what the legislature is proposing. While lawmakers have pointed to overdoses as a reason to recriminalize certain drugs, a study from 2023 concluded fatal drug overdoses did not increase in the year after Measure 110 was introduced. Tio says addiction should be treated like a public health issue rather than a criminal one. Jay Amechi with Unite Oregon says there will be consequences if drug possession is criminalized again. Members of black and Latino communities, for instance, are already arrested at disproportionate rates, and so the burden of criminalization will fall on these communities. Amechi also notes that the state is facing a public defender shortage. If this is an issue now, what are we going to do with the thousands of possession charges that would come if Measure 110 is reversed? It would just create an even greater crisis. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Tio says this issue is tied to hunger as well. She notes that people with criminal records have a harder time finding employment, education opportunities, and housing. She says to address hunger, the state needs to create conditions that allow for stability and community connections. That means investing in proven strategies that reduce and prevent addiction and improve public safety, such as trauma-informed treatment, stable housing, and non-police responses to people experiencing crisis. For Oregon News Service, I'm Eric Tegedoff. In more local news, Multnomah County commissioners are working on a resolution to call for a ceasefire in Gaza after significant pressure from local residents. At the county meeting last Thursday, over 150 demonstrators came and testified before the commission, calling on them to support a ceasefire. More than 24,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, when Hamas militants killed 1,200 people. Organizers also asked the board to offer trauma support to county employees directly impacted by the devastation in Gaza. They also asked the commission to reaffirm its commitment to combating anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, and anti-Semitic speech. At the end of the meeting, Multnomah County Commissioner Lori Stegman thanked those who testified and called on other commissioners to join her in the call for a ceasefire. Here is an excerpt of her remarks. Ceasefires are not just about diplomatic negotiations. They are about preserving the sanctity of life. Every moment we delay in calling for a ceasefire is a moment lost a moment that could have been used to protect the lives of civilians caught in the crossfire. It is our duty as global citizens to speak out against injustices that are occurring. Together, we can build a future where every individual, regardless of their background, can live in peace and dignity. Chair and fellow board members, I urge you to join me in calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. That was Multnomah County Commissioner Lori Stegman calling for a ceasefire at the end of the county commission meeting on Thursday. The board is expected to vote on a resolution calling for a ceasefire in the coming weeks. 
The Portland Fire Department has an $11 million hole in their budget, and the Fire Bureau has floated cutting $3 million from Portland Street Response to patch it up. Portland Street Response is a non-police intervention team that responds to behavioral health 911 calls with a medic, a mental health crisis responder, and a social worker. $3 million represents about a third of the program's budget. The $11 million missing from their budget is largely due to staffing shortages during an increase in emergency calls. The potential cuts to street response comes just weeks after a city audit showed the Fire Bureau was underfunded and underinvested in community health programs like street response in the past year. Street Roots Executive Director Kaya Sand helped start the group Friends of Portland Street Response last year. More than 12,000 people signed a petition calling on city officials to protect, fully fund, and expand that program. Sand told the Oregon Live, quote, saying we have to chip away at an incredibly popular yet not fully realized program because we also need a strong fire department is not just wrong-minded, it's frankly manipulative, end quote. Fire Commissioner Renee Gonzalez says the county, though through the Joint Office of Homeless Services, should fund Portland Street Response, not the Fire Bureau. The Fire Bureau is also considering shutting down one fire station and waiting to purchase several new fire trucks to meet that budget shortfall. Pizzicato and its owners are accused of stealing employees' tips and employing an underage boy in a federal lawsuit by the U.S. Department of Labor. The federal complaint says they violated the Fair Labor Standards Act by requiring their employees to share a portion of their tips with managers and failing to maintain and preserve records of tips. Founder and owner Tracy Frankel says she was surprised by the allegations. Frankel says the accusations that Pizzicato was stealing tips was the result of a misunderstanding of federal law. She says that the manager, excuse me, the managers get a cut of the tips because they work alongside the line staff, serving customers and performing front of house duties. Frankel admitted that one location had hired an underage driver. She says that the general manager at that location did not know he was underage. The 17-year-old driver was turning 18 in a month. Oregon requires tipped employees to be paid a full minimum wage and is one of the few states that allows tip pooling. Pizzicato is settling the allegations for over half a million dollars. The Washington State Legislature is considering a bill that would eliminate the statute of limitations for child sex abuse civil cases. It's a modification of a bill from last year to only apply to cases that arise in the future. KBOO's Matea Carlin has more on the story. Washington state lawmakers are considering eliminating the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse cases this session. House Bill 1618 would revise the current three-year limitation from the discovery of child sexual abuse injuries for filing claims for damages in civil suits. Daryl Cochran is an attorney in Tacoma and former president of Washington State Association for Justice. He says abuse destroys people's lives and it can be years or decades before they're in a position to figure out what happened and why it happened. There's an organization which made me susceptible to being sexually abused that I need to hold accountable, so I'm going to bring a lawsuit. We know that that's all going to happen, and we want to make sure that they don't run into motions to throw their case out on a statute of limitations sometime in the future. A similar bill was introduced last year. However, a fiscal note from the Attorney General's office said it could cost organizations such as school districts or churches large sums if stalled. 
This year's bill was modified so that it only applies to cases that arise in the future. Cochran says he hopes to see a bill in the future that will allow for the retroactive elimination of the statute of limitations. He says that would address a public health concern. The public health threat, endangerment, and injury is every bit as vast or much worse when we're talking about child sexual abuse as when we're talking about something like salmonella or hepatitis. House Bill 1618 has passed the House and is currently in the Senate. The Washington legislative session is scheduled to end on March 7th. For KBOO News and the Public News Service, I'm Matea Carlin. You are listening to the KBOO Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for an in-depth interview with Melly Rose from the Iron Tribe Network, a supportive housing organization funded in part by Measure 110. At 6, it's Labor Radio. At 6.30, it's Prison Pipeline. And then at 7, LTAR. Let's talk about race. Tonight's weather will be rainy with some scattered showers and a low of 43 degrees. Tomorrow's weather will be cloudy with a high of 49. Today in history, in 1917, the current Constitution of Mexico was adopted, establishing a federal republic with power separated into independent executive, legislative, and judicial branches. Our quote of the day is from American diplomat Adlai Stevenson II, born today in 1900. He said, well after that date, quote, We traveled together, passengers on a little spaceship, dependent on its vulnerable reserves of air and soil all committed for our safety to its security and peace, preserved from annihilation only by the care, the work, and the love we give our fragile craft. President Joe Biden wins the South Carolina primary. Minnesota has new voting policies ahead of the March primary. And Representative Ilan Omar faces censure for faulty translation. With more on those stories, it's Edwin J. Vieira with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. I'm feeling good about where we are. I really am. You know, uh, the folks uh, are starting to focus in. And the guy we're running against, uh, he's not for anything. He's against everything. President Joe Biden took 19 of every 20 votes in the South Carolina primary, with his closest opponents only getting about 2%. But a low turnout primary in a red state implies little about the general election. A new NBC poll puts Biden behind former President Donald Trump by five points nationally, although Biden has also led in other recent surveys. Most independent observers still expect a close race. Senators negotiating a bipartisan migration-slash-foreign aid package are releasing details. The $120 billion deal would make asylum harder to get, automatically shut down the border if crossings hit a certain level, and increase border funding, along with including aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Even if it can get out of the Senate, opposition from Trump and the hard right in the House make passage highly unlikely. Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene is again pushing to censure Minnesota progressive Ilhan Omar, but this time for remarks the Democrat didn't make. 
A 10-day-old viral clip mistranslates remarks Omar made at a Minneapolis rally, quoting her as saying she works for the interests of Somalia, where she was born. Despite an independent translation showing Omar just saying she wants to help Somali-Americans, Green is still accusing Omar of treason. And whereas by openly admitting her efforts to advance Somalia's interest, using her position as a United States representative, Representative Omar has revealed herself to be a foreign agent acting on behalf of a foreign government. Omar told reporters, quote, I truly do not care what that insane woman does, unquote. In her brief time in Congress, Green has sponsored or co-sponsored at least 27 attempts to impeach, censure, remove, or expel Democrats, moves that are generally very rare. One month from today will be Minnesota's primary. Blue Earth County Elections Director Mike Stahlberger says the state's making several changes to ease the process, including expanding the voting window to make it easier for working folks to vote without getting in the way of their jobs. Election day is no longer just one day in Minnesota. It's actually the 46 days that lead up to the election and election day. And so they've expanded that right to be able to vote during that 46-day period and be away from work for a reasonable amount of time. New Hampshire lawmakers are advancing a bathroom bill that critics feel allows for anti-LGBTQ discrimination. While House Bill 396 doesn't ban transgender people from using a multi-person bathroom or joining a sports team aligned with their gender, it does allow public and private institutions to create restrictions. Lynn's Jacow is with 603 Equality. Our opponents and unfounded fears saying the sky is going to fall, there's going to be all of these safety and privacy violations. None of those have come true. I'm Edwin J. Vieira for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. A museum in Alaska is building a database to help tribes track repatriation efforts for Native remains. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. While efforts to repatriate Alaska Native remains have been ongoing, keeping track of those remains has been difficult. But now the Alutic Museum in Kodiak, Alaska, is building a database. KMXT's Brian Venois reports, in about two years, tribes will be able to track repatriation progress online. Amanda Lancaster is the Alutic Museum's curator of collections. She says the $100,000 grant comes from the National Park Service's Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. One of the major problems with NAGPRA is that there, there is not like a central database that shows what has been repatriated, what has been claimed. And so oftentimes tribes will spend time pursuing these repatriations and then it turns out that that you know set of ancestral remains was, was returned and reburied 20 years ago. The new grant now gives the Alutic Museum federal funds to create a central database that tracks repatriation progress. The money is going to be split for travel to villages, to meet with tribal representatives, and for staff to dedicate their time towards the project. Lancaster says the museum will also use funds to contract outside software developers to create the system. Part of that money is earmarked for them to, to work on that database for us, to create a, a login system so that tribes, tribes can actually access the database themselves. This is just the latest step in bringing Alutic and Sukpiak remains back to the archipelago. The Kodiak Alutic Sukpiak Repatriation Commission and museum staff have been working to repatriate several human remains since 2007. Lancaster says the commission last met in 2022 after the museum got a similar grant that would fund more research to find additional remains. We identified 12 collecting institutions in the U.S. that had the remains of at least 168 Alutic ancestors. And those are just the ones we know about. The database is expected to be completed in the next two years and will only be accessible to Kodiak's 10 federally recognized tribes. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Venois. 
Two native groups are headed to Las Vegas for the Super Bowl, but not to cheer on the NFL championship game between Kansas City and San Francisco. As KNBA's Jill Freitas reports, they'll be holding a demonstration on Sunday. The Greater Kansas City Area Group, not in our honor, plans to make the trip to Vegas for what members say will be a peaceful demonstration outside the stadium. They'll be joined by the group Arizona Rally Against Mascots. Members of the groups are advocating for the Kansas City team to change its name and for the end of native cultural appropriation. Gaylene Krauser is executive director of the Kansas City Indian Center and a member of Not In Our Honor. She'll be in Vegas for the demonstration and says that showing up to such a big event is important. Stand up and show there is opposition to the use of our imagery and likeness and the bastardization of our culture and all of those things that that it's not okay and that they don't have the support of all of Indian country. The Kansas City team has been gaining much attention, all due to the celebrity of Taylor Swift. The singer is dating one of the players. Krauser says she thinks Swift could be an advocate for the native groups. If she were to say to them, I want to support my boyfriend and I really want to do whatever I can, but this particular issue is wrong to have human beings as a mascot and to utilize the imagery that way and and come out against it. I believe she would have a lot of sway. Krauser says she's thankful Swift has not taken part in evoking the outdated stereotype of Native people when fans chant and do the tomahawk chop at games. And as far as the team changing its name, Krauser thinks it will have to take something drastic like a financial hit, but not in our honor plans to continue to hold demonstrations as long as it takes. I'm Jill Freitas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A recent analysis shows that more than 67 million came into Washington state elections between 2018 and 2022 from foreign-influenced corporations. Of the six states analyzed, Washington garnered the most campaign contributions. Eric Tegedoff has more. A report analyzed the impact of money from foreign-influenced corporations on elections in six states. Washington topped the list for most donations. Open Secrets looked at campaign donations from more than 800 companies with 5% aggregate foreign ownership or an individual foreign owner over 1% to state-level elections between 2018 and 2022. Washington State took in more than $67 million in contributions during that time. Anna Masolia is the editorial and investigations manager for Open Secrets. It really underscores the need for transparency to address the challenges posed by these companies that are at least in part foreign owned and more need for examination of the influence that they wield as well as who is pulling the strings behind the scenes. The energy company Philips 66, Coca-Cola and BP were some of the biggest contributors to Washington state elections. Masolia says there has been some attempt to crack down on the impact of foreign money on U.S. elections. In Washington, the Seattle City Council passed a bill banning political spending on local elections from corporations that met the same threshold for foreign influence, not 5% aggregate foreign ownership or 1% individual ownership. But even with that, we were still seeing substantial money going into Washington's state level. The other states analyzed in this report were Colorado, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, and New York. Across the six states, Open Secrets found more than $163 million in contributions. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. For Washington News Service, I'm Eric Tegedoff. The U.S. economy prizes tech and innovation, and experts say rural areas need more math and computer offerings to add jobs lost the pandemic and the Great Recession. Roz Brown has more on the story. 
Rural employment began falling in 2008, at the start of the Great Recession, and did not recover at the same rate as urban areas. Matt Dune with the Center on Rural Innovation says metro areas in states like Texas now have higher employment because technology innovation drives a larger share of economic growth. The traditional industries in rural places saw many of those jobs automated away, either through offshoring or allowing large multinational corporations to do more with fewer people. Government, agriculture, manufacturing, healthcare, retail, and hospitality are the top employment industries in rural America, where 46 million people live, roughly 14% of the U.S. population. I'm Roz Brown. For American Heart Month, new research confirms the connection between a person's sleeping patterns and heart health. As a matter of fact, heart disease is already the number two cause of death in the state of Oregon. According to this new report, inconsistent sleep can lead to an increase in heart failure risk. Terry D. has more from Indiana. The body's reactions to physical, mental, and behavioral changes within a 24-hour cycle influence its internal clock or circadian rhythm. Indiana cardiologist Dr. Sandeep Dubay says in the study, researchers found a stable circadian rhythm can mean a 40 to 60 percent lower risk of heart disease. If participants had irregular circadian heart rhythms, they had inefficient sleep, they actually increased the risk of heart disease by more than three-fourths. Heart disease is the number one cause of death in Indiana with 191 deaths per 100,000 Hoosiers. Dubay adds that stress and a lack of quality sleep could also increase the risk for other chronic illnesses such as diabetes, arthritis, and cancer. According to the report, heart failure affects almost 6 million Americans over age 20. That number is projected to increase to 8 million by 2030. I'm Terry D. reporting. You are listening to the KBU Evening News for Monday, February 5th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Matea Carlin, Chris Gow, and David Rosenberg. The producer and engineer is Althea Billings. Special thanks to Terry D., Roz Brown, Eric Tagadoff, Edwin J. Vieira, and Antonia Gonzalez. The director of Evening News is the superlative Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Reed Johnson. And I'm Michelle Coppola. All of our cable programs, including the Evening News, are supported by our members, great folks like you. We cannot do it without you. So if you'd like to become a member and support our programming, please go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Stay tuned now for KBOO News In-Depth and have a great night. KBOO News In-Depth where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community. This is KBOO News In-Depth. I'm Althea Billings. February 5th is the first day of Oregon's short legislative session, and it's a pivotal moment for drug policy. 
lawmakers are poised to recriminalize possession of drugs, undoing a critical part of the voter passed Measure 110. But drug decriminalization is only a part of what that measure did. It also redirected cannabis tax dollars toward a continuum of care for people with substance use disorder. The funds have gone towards hundreds of organizations across the state to ramp up their efforts. One of those organizations is Iron Tribe Network, a peer-run nonprofit that provides recovery housing, family reunification, and peer support. I spoke with their director of operations, Melly Rose, to learn more about what they do. How did Iron Tribe Network get started? Oh, that's a great story. Um, Iron Tribe Network started with two individuals. They were on their way to prison. Um, They had both been to prison before and wanted to do something different with their life. Um, And they started gathering like-minded individuals while they were in prison that wanted to do something different when they got out. And so when they were released to the streets, you know, they started